Hi folks, and welcome back for part two of my series on how I read John Calvin. Last time in the first part of the series, I spoke about my time with Calvin, uh, where I learned about Calvin when I started reading Calvin, who I learned to read Calvin from, and kind of what I focused on uh, with reading Calvin and how I think we should understand Calvin in broad strokes. Um, this time I want to kind of uh, dig into some of Calvin's texts and follow up on one of the points that I made last time. I ended the video, or very nearly ended the video, by reading from the very first passage uh, in Calvin's Institutes, in Book 1, Chapter 1, Section 1. And it's one of the most famous lines that Calvin ever wrote. And so I want to uh, read that for you again and then unpack it a bit, uh, tracing some of Calvin's thought through the first 10 books or so of the Institutes. So, that passage is as follows. Nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But, while joined with many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other, is not easy to discern. Now, in the sections immediately following this, Calvin kind of goes back and forth trying to figure out which one comes first and which one comes second, and he never comes to a clear decision about that. Uh, they're kind of bound up in a dialectical relationship. They always come together, knowledge of God and knowledge of the self. Uh, but Calvin does say that he's going to treat one of them first just by way of teaching order. He needs to start his discussion somewhere. And so he starts it with knowledge of God. And his real question is whether uh, it's possible for human beings to know anything about God on the basis of creation. And he kind of highlights uh, two metaphors uh, for thinking about knowledge of God in creation. And those metaphors are uh, creation as a theater and lamps in creation that kind of shine forth uh, with the glory of God. So uh, one of the places where he talks about creation as a theater is in Book 1, Chapter 5, Section 8. At the end of Section 7, or toward the end, he's talking about how in creation and in providence, uh, God clearly shows God's self as the protector and vindicator of those who are innocent and so on. Uh, and as part of this relationship that God has, this providential relationship with uh, creation, especially with human beings, it becomes possible to talk about creation as a theater, uh, of God's glory. Uh, and think about like uh, old school theater, not a movie theater, but theater when you go and see people acting things out on stage. The idea is that creation is this location, this space where God and human beings can interact and play out a story. And so creation is the context within which a knowledge of God comes to us. And then also, uh, we got to skip ahead a bit more, but still in chapter five, if we go up to uh, section 15, we see Calvin talking about the lamps. He said that, says that there are so many burning lamps uh, shining for us in the workmanship of the universe. So uh, creation, again, that theater that we were just talking about, not only is it a space uh, where this interaction with God plays out, where knowledge of God is to be found, but the way that this stage, this theater has been constructed gives us some kind of idea about the story that's going to be played out, about the characters, and especially about God, the God who created the theater, so to speak. So Calvin is very much on the side of folks 
who think that there is some natural knowledge of God objectively out there available in God's creation. In other words, the sort of stuff that God does, like creating, the sort of stuff that God makes, creation, can tell us something about the sort of God who did the creating, who did the making. Calvin's on board with that, at least theoretically. Because for Calvin, it's not clear that this theater or these lamps uh, actually communicate any knowledge of God. It's not the problem of the theater or the lamps. Those are just fine. The problem is with human beings being unable to see the stage properly, unable to register the radiance of the lamps. And so even when talking about the lamps, Calvin begins the sentence by saying that it's vain that these lamps burn. Yeah, they're out there shining bright with radiance of God's glory, but they do so in vain. They do so futilely. They don't actually communicate that knowledge to us. We can't receive it. And also when he talks about the theater, he goes on to say that even though there's this theater, it profits nothing. And no matter how much God's glory shines forth, scarcely one person in a hundred is a true spectator of it. Basically, Calvin's saying the stats don't really encourage us. People don't really get what's going on in this theater. So there's that objective uh, knowledge of God, the possibility of it out there, but it's not received. And Calvin has another uh, metaphor that he uses to describe the human condition, living in this theater, living surrounded by these lamps, but unable to pick up on the knowledge of God that they, they try to communicate. And that uh, metaphor that he uses is the labyrinth. Uh, some of you may remember in Greek mythology, the Minotaur stuck down in the labyrinth. I believe, was it Daedalus, Icarus's father, who builds the labyrinth? Um, but the Minotaur is down there, and it's all twisted and turned, and it's a giant maze, and you can't get out. Calvin is saying that uh, this is a metaphor for how we uh, are stuck and experience this theater. So still in chapter 5, we need to go to uh, section 12. Hence arises the boundless, filthy mire of error, wherewith the whole earth was filled and covered, for each person's mind was like a labyrinth. So the human mind is like a labyrinth. It's a, a maze that you can't get your way out of. It traps you. And so uh, even though we have this creation as a stage, as a theater, even though we have these lamps, that light, that knowledge gets stuck in this labyrinth and twisted and turned around and comes to be of no use for us. Uh, if we jump over to chapter 6 again, uh, not again for the first time, chapter 6, the very first Oh, no, the third section, uh, we see Calvin talking about the labyrinth again. The splendor of the divine countenance, God's face, uh, this kind of personal relation and knowledge that people could have of God, uh, is for us like an inexplicable labyrinth. So once again, stuck and pulled down into this twisted maze. And so in uh, section 2 in chapter 6, once again, the glorious theater of creation, but then in the very next section, this inexplicable labyrinth that we're stuck in. And it's really sin uh, for Calvin that produces this problem, that sticks us in this labyrinth. Now, another metaphor that God, uh, Calvin uses 
is blindness. And we're going to go back to chapter 4 to pick up this metaphor. And we're looking in uh, subsection 1 of chapter 4. And this comes in the context of Calvin talking about a seed of religion that has been divinely implanted in everyone. So for Calvin, no matter who you are, if you're a human being, you have this reflex for religion. You have the equipment for religion. But uh, no real piety remains in the world, he goes on to say. Even though we have this reflex, even though we have this equipment, it doesn't do us any good. Why? Because sin. And indeed, Calvin says there's a blindness under which human beings labor, and this blindness is made even worse by being mixed with proud vanity and obstinacy. And because of this, uh, human beings do not apprehend God as God offers himself. So in that theater, through those lamps, through creation, and all of these different ways, God is offering knowledge of God's self to human beings, but human beings do not receive it. They don't grasp onto it. They don't apprehend it. Instead, uh, human beings imagine God as they think that God should be. Why? Because they're trapped in this labyrinth. They are blind. So even if they're sitting in the theater, they're blind. They can't see it. Even if they're surrounded by the lamps, they're blind. They can't see it. And this idea of blindness runs all through uh, Calvin's treatment. Uh, you can pick it up here and there. Calvin talks about a blind urge that grips folks in chapter 4, subsection 2. And we're going to come away from, come back to that in a minute. But then further in chapter 5, in subsection 12, uh, you get blindness a couple of times there. So that was one of the passages that had uh, the labyrinth so uh, highlighted for us. He talks about uh, how horrible is the blindness of the human mind there in section 12 of chapter 5. And then if you go down to the bottom of that paragraph, no mortal ever contrived anything that did not basely corrupt religion. So you've got that seed of religion, but because of that blindness, because uh, of our minds being stuck in a labyrinth, we twist it and distort it. And again, uh, human beings, <laughs> Calvin's kind of one-upping things here, uh, we're, they're more stupid than blind. So that blindness is there, but there's a stupidness that goes along with it. And then continuing on for subsection 13, uh, the Holy Spirit declaring people uh, that all people are apostates who labor in blindness. So uh, even though there's this objective, objective knowledge to be had there, uh, because of the labyrinth, because of blindness, uh, human beings are unable to see it. And this has an affective dimension. It's not only about the intellect, it's about desire, it's about emotions, it's about affections. And Calvin gets into that uh, back in chapter 4, where we were looking previously at the end of section 2, talking about blind urges. No fear restrains people from rushing violently against God, from rejecting God's providence, from rejecting uh, the prospect that they should obey God, uh, and following in paths that God has set. Uh, instead, there's this blind urge that grips people, and in their oafishness, they have an, they have an oafish forgetfulness of God. So there's that affective dimension. It's not just a problem of cognition. It's a problem of emotion. 
it's not only not thinking the right way, it's not feeling the right way and having the right kind of relationship. It's in contrast to what Calvin defines in the very next section, chapter 4, section 3, as true religion. He says, true religion ought to be conformed to God's will. Conformed to God's will. That's the key. The problem with blindness and with oafishness, uh, not only of the mind but of the heart, is that it distorts so that there's this blind urge that pulls people away from conformity to God's will. And then in section 4, Calvin writes about a blind wickedness. So this blind urge, but now also a blind wickedness. Uh, tr uh, people's trust ought to have been placed in God, but they neglect God and rely upon themselves, even though they're God's creatures. Finally, they en entangle themselves in such a huge mass of errors that blind wickedness stifles and finally extinguishes those sparks which once flashed forth to so show them God's glory. So again, uh, through wickedness that enters into it, not just uh, improper thinking, but improper emotion, improper behavior, improper affect, uh, the knowledge of God that's there to be had in this theater and through those lamps gets extinguished. It's part of the blindness that overcomes uh, the possibility of knowledge of God. And I think it's really instructive uh, to contrast all of Calvin's discussion here with what he has to say about faith later on in book three. So I'm just flipping much further back in my uh, volume of the Institutes here. And we need very, the beginning of uh, book three in chapter two and section two. Calvin says that faith rests not on ignorance but on knowledge. Not on ignorance, but on knowledge. And what's the kind of knowledge uh, that human beings need to have of God? Well, it's not some kind of abstract knowledge. It's not pure cognition. Once again, it has to do with affect. It has to do emotion, with emotion, relationship, feeling. Uh, Calvin says that you have right knowledge of God. You have faith when you know that God is your merciful Father, and that Christ, uh, because of reconciliation affected through Christ, and that Christ has been given to us as righteousness, sanctification, and life. So it's not just intellectual knowledge, it's knowledge of a certain kind of relationship. It has this effective, affective side, a certain kind of relationship that you have with God because of what Christ has done. He reiterates the point that it's not uh, abstract knowledge in section 6 because uh, the faith that has true knowledge of God and true knowledge of Christ is a faith in Christ clothed with his gospel. So, this then is the true knowledge of Christ. If we receive him as he is offered by the Father, namely clothed with his gospel. It's not just information. It's not just this kind of abstract cognition. It's grasping the soteriological core uh, of Christian faith that says, because uh, of what Jesus has done, there is this new kind of relationship that you can have with God. That's the kind of knowledge. And uh, this line of Christ closed with his gospel in uh, Book 3, Chapter 2, Section 6, is a line that Tom Torrance, if you know his theology, he picks up on that a lot and will quite frequently speak about Christ clothed with his gospel. Torrance got it from Calvin here in book three.
All of this amounts uh, to Calvin's definition of faith, or, well, I should say, uh, one of his fuller definitions of faith. He spends the first bit of book three working through a number of successive definitions, slowly building it up to this. He says, we shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So it's a firm and certain knowledge, but not knowledge of some abstract information like uh, a God exists or there was a guy named Jesus who walked around in the Middle East about 2,000 years ago. Not that kind of abstract knowledge, but a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence, that God takes a parental attitude toward human beings rather than a judgmental one, and that God does so because of Christ. That's the kind of knowledge uh, that stands in contrast to the blind wickedness that uh, characterizes knowledge of God if all we're doing is looking around at creation, if all we're doing is considering what humanity has uh, naturally, so to speak. So how do you make the transition then from this kind of blind wickedness, this labyrinth, that uh, extinguishes the lamps in creation that show forth God's glory, that render ineffective the theater of creation in which God's glory is put on display. How do you make that transition from blind wickedness to faith, firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence? Well, scripture for Calvin has a big part to play here. And we start to see that when we look back in book one at chapter six. And it's at this point that Calvin introduces another metaphor. Now he's going to talk about spectacles, glasses, eyeglasses, things that you wear on your eyes uh, to help you see better. Calvin says, just as old or bleary-eyed men and those with weak vision, if you thrust before them a most beautiful book, even if they recognize it to be some sort of writing, yet can scarcely construe two words, but with the aid of spectacles will begin to read distinctly. So scripture, gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, having dispersed our dullness, clearly shows us the true God. Now, there's a basic inconsistency here, because uh, blindness is one kind of thing. And weak vision that you can fix with glasses, that's another kind of thing. So which is it? And this is honestly a serious uh, inconsistency in Calvin's treatment of natural knowledge of God. When he's trying to emphasize the problem that sin introduces to uh, knowledge of God, he uses the emphatic language of blindness. But when it comes to talk about the solution to this problem, instead of uh, something that makes a qualitative difference, right? With blindness, you have two different qualities. Either you're blind or you're not, or you can see. But then talking about weak vision puts things in quantitative terms. You can see more or less, the problem being less, and you need to see more. So there's a different valuation there in the knowledge that you can have before glasses. If you're blind, you have absolutely nothing. So Calvin talks about blindness when emphasizing the problem, he talks about weakness of vision when I'm talking about the solution. And that's a deep inconsistency in his thought. 
uh, this was first uh, pointed out to me so that I became, you know, aware of it as an interpreter of Calvin by George Hunsinger, but I've since found it uh, in David Steinmetz, for instance, and this is Steinmetz's book, Calvin in Context, and I'll have something more to say about that book uh, a little bit later on. So Calvin's shifting from blindness to weakness of vision. Now, once again, there's an affective side here, something to do with the emotions, with relationship, something other than just abstract cognition. So if we drop back to Book 1, Chapter 5, Section 14, we see that the spectacles only work with inner illumination or with revelation through faith. So the invisible divinity, and I'm reading from 1, 5, 14. The invisible divinity, God, is made manifest in such spectacles, the spectacles of Scripture, the glasses of Scripture you see through Scripture. But we have not the eyes to see this unless they be illumined by the inner revelation of God through faith. So there's faith there, this inner illumination, something awakens within us, a new perception awakens within us, and now once we have that new perception in place, you can see through the spectacles and understand uh, the knowledge of God. Uh, and this inner knowledge comes back again in chapter 6, section 1. Uh, that's the language he uses for it at the very bottom of page 70 in my edition of the Institutes. Uh, first, in order, came the kind of knowledge by which one is permitted to grasp who that God is who founded and governs the universe. This is kind of an abstract knowledge of God's existence. Then, another inner knowledge was added to that, which alone quickens dead souls, whereby God is known not only as the founder of the universe, but also in the person of the mediator. In other words, Christian faith doesn't have to do or isn't uh, a question of whether or not you believe that there is a God who exists, some kind of supreme being. Uh, but Christian faith tells you that this supreme being, whatever that is, uh, is revealed in a particular Jewish male who was crucified by the Roman Emperor, Empire about 2,000 years ago and who told one another to love each other uh, and to uh, do good to one another and to hope for the best even for one's enemies. That's what Christian faith entails, understanding that this Jewish man is the revelation of God's benevolence toward humanity. But this is an inner knowledge. It's not a matter of pure cognition. It has that affective aspect that we've been talking about. And this affective aspect only or also involves obedience. Calvin says in chapter 6, section 2, there also emerges the beginning of true understanding. In other words, you start understanding properly when we reverently embrace what it pleases God there to witness to himself. But not only faith, perfect and in every way complete, but all right knowledge of God is born of obedience. Faith is born of obedience, and all right knowledge of God is born of obedience. So not only some kind of abstract cognition, but uh, accepting the constraints, the limitations, and the guidance that God has to communicate such that one's life and thinking and affections uh, can become properly ordered to drop into some Augustinian language there. Without that, 
you're still blind and you're stuck in the labyrinth. So scripture are these spectacles that corrects weak vision uh, and helps you to see, but they only work if you have that affective inner revelation, this illumination uh, through faith, uh, making them work. Calvin then has another question that logically arises at this point. Why scripture? Why should you understand scripture to be spectacles? Why should you commit yourself to this idea by viewing scripture as the spectacles that there was this Jewish guy 2,000 years ago who uh, was meek and humble and uh, executed by an empire for political sedition? Uh, why should we accept the idea that this person is the supreme being, the revelation, the embodiment, the incarnation of the supreme being? Why? Calvin says, uh, I don't really have a good argument for that, but I can describe what happens. And so that's what he does in section 7, or chapter 7 of uh, book 1. The basic idea that Calvin is working with is that Scripture does not have any kind of independent, objective authentication. You can't look anywhere to prove that Scripture is true. You can't make any kind of argument. You can't build up a historical case. None of that is going to do the work that you need to have done for you to have faith in these spectacles, for you to be convinced that these spectacles are illuminating for you true knowledge of God. God that God speaks in Scripture, that they do function properly as these spectacles for Calvin, is attested by the secret testimony of the Spirit. Secret testimony. Not obvious testimony. Uh, when the secret testimony of the Spirit arrives for you, you don't start to glow. You don't have horns on your head. You don't have a halo. There's nothing obvious about it. There's a secret testimony of the Spirit. If we desire to provide in the best way for our conscience, that they may not be perpetually beset by the instability of doubt or vacillation, and that they may not also boggle at the smallest quibbles. In other words, if you've got folks who aren't sure about Scripture's authority, and if you've got folks who are kind of existentially upset by the fact that there are different interpretations of Scripture, Calvin says if you want to deal properly with that, the only solution to that is we ought to seek our conviction of Scripture's authority in a higher place than human reasons. You can't put your conviction in human reasons. It needs to come from a higher place. That is, in the secret testimony of the Spirit. So those who try to demonstrate Scripture's authority with reference to anything else are doing it backwards because God's witness to God's self in Scripture cannot be verified by a higher authority. And that idea of doing things backwards, that's not me. That's a quote from Calvin. Same section, section 4 in chapter 7, Yet they who strive to build up firm faith in Scripture through disputation, through arguments, are doing things backwards. And then, a little bit farther down, The testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word, so also the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. In other words, you're never going to argue people into faith. It's not going to work. You're never going to argue people into believing that God speaks in Scripture. And if you think you have, uh, you're confused, and so are the people you're arguing with. It doesn't work. The only fit witness to God is God, God's self. And so Scripture is 
dependent, the authority of Scripture is dependent on the testimony of the Holy Spirit. If you think that you can argue people into this kind of belief, what you're doing there is putting human logic and human rationality and human argument uh, in a place of judgment over whether or not God speaks. And Calvin will not allow that. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is more excellent than all reason. Now, Calvin then goes on in the next section uh, to use some language that has become uh, very much associated with his doctrine of Scripture. He talks about Scripture as being self-authenticated. Self-authenticated. Let this point therefore stand, and we're in section 5 of chapter 7. Let this point therefore stand that those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught, that secret, uh, that secret testimony, that inward revelation, those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught truly rest upon Scripture, and that Scripture indeed is self-authenticated. Hence, it is not right to subject it to proof and reasoning, because it's self-authenticated. And then he goes on a little bit farther down. We seek no proofs, no marks of genuineness upon which our judgment may lean, but we subject our judgment and wit to it, Scripture, as to a thing far beyond any guesswork. Now, when we say Scripture is self-authenticated, uh, we can't get the idea that Scripture as such, this particular book, somehow authenticates itself. It's not about any kind of excellence that Scripture has, Calvin goes on to explain. It's not that it's really great literature. It's not that uh, it's clearly historically accurate and you can prove, you can demonstrate every single thing it says. None of that is true. That's not what Calvin's talking about. Those are improper ways to demonstrate Scripture's authority. What he means uh, when he talks about Scripture's self-authentication, is uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. And he gets into this toward the end of this section. Let us then know that the only true faith is that which the Spirit of God seals in our hearts. And this uh, true faith requires no reasons and seeks no proofs. So, when Calvin says self-authenticated, he really means spirit-authenticated. The point is that you can't set any other form of human reasoning, any other judgment, any other logic over Scripture, and that the Spirit, God, God's self, is the witness to Scripture's authority, the highest possible witness. And without that witness, uh, you're never going to convince anybody. The Word will not find acceptance in men's hearts unless it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Calvin goes on in chapter 8 to describe uh, what we might call corroborating evidence. He thinks that if you look at Scripture, if you look at history, you can put two, two together and see that this is a pretty remarkable book. Uh, but if we look at the end of chapter 8, in section 13, we'll see the kind of conclusions that Calvin draws from this. There are reasons neither few nor weak, for which the dignity and majesty of Scripture are not only affirmed in godly hearts, but brilliantly vindicated against the wiles of the disparagers. Lots of good arguments you can make, Calvin says, yet, of themselves, these are not strong enough to provide a firm faith. They don't work. Until our Heavenly Father, revealing His majesty there in Scripture, lifts reverence for Scripture beyond the realm of controversy. Therefore, Scripture will ultimately suffice for a saving knowledge of God. 
and really, what's the point of any other kind? Scripture will only suffice for a saving knowledge of God when its certainly, certainty is founded upon the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. The inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Now, those of you who are familiar with dialectical theology from the early 20th century will say, uh, will recognize that this is only one sort uh, one short step away from Sach critic, the idea that you uh, can understand on the basis of this kind of inward testimony of the Spirit, on the basis of faith, that this gives you a hermeneutical norm that you can then deploy in your reading of Scripture uh, to identify uh, what the true thing or uh, significance or meaning or object, the sake of Scripture, is. So Calvin is once again kind of a proto-dialectical theologian insofar as he makes uh, the authority of Scripture dependent upon this inner testimony of the Holy Spirit upon faith. There is no uh, objective ground upon which one can stand apart from the subjective experience of faith on the basis of which you can uh, authenticate Scripture. It's purely subjective. It's uh, all an exercise in circular reasoning. In the next section, in chapter 9, Calvin then has to defend his uh, understanding of the Spirit's authentication of Scripture against uh, members of the Radical Reformation. And he has to answer the question of uh, why, if, if everything depends on the Spirit's inward witness anyway, why shouldn't it be the case that the Holy Spirit comes to different people today and reveals things uh, outside the bounds of Scripture, perhaps uh, competing with Scripture so that we need to follow the newer revelations over against the older. And this turns into a problem of relating word and spirit uh, that uh, has stuck with the Reformed tradition and continue to talk about this. Uh, Calvin's solution to this problem is um, rather uh, elegant. And you get it in chapter 9, uh, toward the end of section 2. And basically what Calvin says is, the Holy Spirit was involved in producing Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspires it. The Holy Spirit is the one who authenticates it. And uh, people claim that the Holy Spirit is the one providing these later revelations. Well, uh, the Holy Spirit cannot vary and differ from himself. If it truly is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is going to be the same, more or less the same thing in both places. And if the Spirit is not doing so, then you have to wonder whether or not you're dealing with the Holy Spirit. So this is the larger quote. Lest under this sign the spirit of Satan should creep in, the Holy Spirit would have us recognize him in his own image, which he has stamped upon the scriptures. He is the author of the scriptures. He cannot vary and differ from himself. Hence, he must ever remain just as he once revealed himself there. This is no affront to him. It doesn't belittle the spirit or limit the spirit or undermine the spirit to say that the Holy Spirit's going to stay consistent with the Spirit itself. So that's how he handles the problem of word and spirit. So there's a bit of a reading of Calvin on the knowledge of God through how Scripture is self-authenticated and the relationship of word and spirit that you get uh, through the first nine and ten chapters of the first book of the Institutes. It's some of my favorite stuff in the Institutes, uh, even though uh, it's pretty complicated. Uh, but Calvin's use of metaphor is so fascinating and how he builds these metaphors up and relates them one to another. Uh, just a few comments by way of evaluation. It's interesting uh, 
to me at least, that Calvin is rather Ciceronian in his approach to the natural knowledge of God. So Cicero is one of the uh, ancient Latin writers uh, who Calvin knew very well on the basis of Calvin's humanism, which we talked about in the first video. And Cicero makes a number of arguments that end up being very similar to Calvin. And so I'll just read um, one passage here. Uh, remember, Calvin uh, isn't all about making arguments for God's existence. He kind of assumes that there's the seed of religion inside of people and that this uh, kind of uh, results in a natural religiosity. The problem is that it's all twisted and it doesn't uh, work correctly. And in fact, one passage that I always come back to is in chapter 8 in book 1. Uh, no, I'm sorry, chapter 11 in book 1. It's section 8 inside chapter 11, but it's another one of Calvin's great metaphors. He says that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Human beings are idol factories. We just keep producing improper representations of God, incorrect knowledge of God. That's just part of what it means to be human. And he kind of gets this idea from Cicero. So uh, Cicero says, when he's talking about uh, knowledge of divinity, that this is not a belief that has been prescribed to us by some authority or law or custom. It rests rather upon a firm and continuing conse consensus of opinion that we must admit the existence of the gods because this knowledge is implanted in our minds from birth. Sounds a lot like Calvin's seed of religion. And an idea that by its nature commands universal agreement must be true. Now this is from Cicero's uh, treatise on the nature of the gods. So uh, Calvin is doing a very similar thing. He just assumes everyone believes in a god of one kind or another. The problem is that uh, this knowledge is twisted. There's this labyrinth, there's this blindness, so that it's not actual knowledge of the true God. For that, you need that inner testimony of the Spirit, you need the spectacles of Scripture. Another point of evaluation is that um, it's interesting to make comparisons to Cal uh, with Calvin here uh, to the other reformers from his time period. Uh, looking back, especially for somebody who's uh, study dialectical theology like me, we kind of look back at Calvin from the vantage point of Barth, and Barth very famously rejected all kinds of natural theology and would not countenance the idea that there's a natural knowledge of God. And then we look back at Calvin, and Calvin you know, says there's some things. Uh, it's twisted, it's deformed, they're all idols, uh, but there's some things. Uh, Calvin, however, was actually very um, reticent when compared to other reformers about knowledge of God. To the eyes of a Bardian, Calvin is very optimistic about natural knowledge of God. Uh, but Steinmetz, again, this Calvin in Context book, it's one of the earlier chapters on Calvin and the natural knowledge of God, uh, compares Calvin uh, to people like Melanchthon and Bullinger and Butzer uh, for points of agreement. But uh, Melanchthon, Bullinger, and Butzer all think that it's possible to have a reliable, and now I'm quoting Steinmetz, a reliable, if rudimentary, knowledge of the will or essence of God. So Melanchthon, Bullinger, and Booster think that. Calvin doesn't. So Calvin is much more skeptical of natural knowledge of God than many of the other leading reformers, even in his own day. So if we think about kind of trend lines in uh, theology for how we work through these things, Calvin is on a trend line somewhere in between somebody like Melanchthon, Bootser, and Bullinger on one end 
in between them, you have Calvin, and then toward the other end, you have Bart. And since we're talking about Bart, this uh, book is an exchange of essays between Karl Bart and Emil Brunner, uh, published in 1934, I believe. And they're arguing precisely about the natural knowledge of God. An interpretation of Calvin and Calvin's Institutes, the sections we've just been going over, features very much uh, in this book. And I want to, I think understanding that background in Calvin helps us understand what was going on with Bart uh, quite a bit more clearly. So if in Calvin you have a bit of inconsistency there, you have this idea of blindness at one moment and then weak vision at another moment, uh, it becomes more understandable why somebody like Bruner can look at Bart and emphasize weak vision. Uh, Calvin. Somebody like Bruner can look at Calvin and emphasize weak vision. Somebody like Bart can look at Calvin and emphasize blindness. And so Bart uh, recognizes this to a great extent and kind of theorizes what he's doing with it. If I can find the right passage here. So it's toward the end of the book. I'm right around page 100, 101. Uh, Calvin's talking about how the Bart's talking about how the influence of Augustine remained very much in Reformational theology, and this kind of produced some problems when it came to the natural, not, nat natural knowledge of God. And Cal Bart says, we are not in a position today to repeat the statements of Luther and Calvin without at the same time making them more pointed than they themselves did. Bart thinks it's time to see the issue uh, at the, uh, grasp the nettle at the heart of this question of natural knowledge of God much more directly than Calvin or Luther did. He says that uh, Calvin and Luther and these folks did not feel themselves called upon to clarify the problem of the formal relation between reason with its interpretation of nature and history on the one hand and the absolute claims of revelation on the other. So they didn't reach a, a, a sufficient level of theoretical clarity. And it's interesting for Bart because Bart claim, or blames this on the practical non-existence of St. Thomas in the 16th century. So Bart's saying that if the reformers had known Thomas Aquinas better, they might have done a little bit better of a job on this. But nonetheless, they didn't. And so Bart feels compelled now to come back through and see things more clearly and revise matters uh, to bring a new level of consistency. And... Uh, Basically, the problem that he sees is that you've got a disconnect between what the reformers like Calvin say on the question of grace and salvation and what they say on the question of natural knowledge of God. So, quoting from Bart again, they, the reformers, saw and attacked the possibility of an intellectual work righteousness in the basis of theological thought, but they did not do so as widely, as clearly, and as fundamentally as they did with respect to the possibility of a moral work righteousness in the basis of the Christian life. In other words, the reformers were really good at trying to get, quote-unquote, works, uh, independent human agency, out of their thinking about soteriology, about salvation. They did a good job extracting that. The problem is they didn't do the same kind of thorough work when it comes to natural knowledge of God. They didn't get that natural knowledge of God extracted out of their theological epistemologies, if you will, as thoroughly as they did uh, out of their soteriologies. And so Bart feels the need in his own work to bring that consistency, to make the rigors of theological epistemology uh, systematically coordinate 
uh, or he, he says coordinate systematically with uh, soteriolo reformational soteriology. And one of the places uh, that he does this most extensively is in Church Dogmatics 2.1. Uh, the whole first half of Church Dogmatics 2.1 deals with theological epistemology. And paragraph 26 is kind of the core of that, and he explicates matters uh, according to two subsections. He talks about the readiness of God to be known and the readiness of human beings to know God. And unsurprisingly, uh, he coordinates all of this through Jesus, through the Incarnation. So that in the Incarnation, you have God being ready to be known by human beings. God making God's self available to be known. And then, also in the Incarnation, through Jesus Christ's humanity, you have human beings faithfully knowing God. So all of that comes together there in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, uh, there is, for Bart, there is no readiness of God to be known, just in general and in the abstract. And there is no human readiness to know God just in general and in the abstract. All of this comes through Christ in the incarnation, and then the rest of us kind of tap into it or plug into it, as it were, through the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ. But then one of the most fascinating things about this section for me, and uh, which brings us back to Calvin, starts up on page 97 or so, and it extends from about page 97 through about page 126. And basically what Bard is doing here is he's returning to the Bible question, to Scripture. And he says, what are we going to do with this approach to the knowledge of God that rules out natural theology, natural knowledge of God, if there seem to be, seems to be passages of Scripture that support that kind of idea? And if you know Scripture at all, you know uh, that there are things in the Psalms that start to sound like natural knowledge of God. You've got famous passages uh, toward the back end of Romans chapter 1, that start to sound this way. There are things in there that traditionally have been read as supporting natural knowledge of God. And Bart's saying, now, we need to slow down and we need to look at this carefully, because if uh, Scripture is saying that, then Bart says, I'm going to have to revise everything that I've been doing. So he kind of begins this running commentary on all these passages of Scripture, stretching about these 25 pages here. And the thing that he lifts up about all of these passages is that all of these references to natural knowledge of God, things that Calvin would talk about in terms of creation being a theater or these lamps that shine forth, all of these statements, Bart points out, happen from within the context of faith. In other words, they're statements that are made not independent of that secret inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, but they're statements of faith that are entire, entirely dependent upon it. They exist within a pre-existing relationship between God and humanity, whether the covenant with Israel in the Old Testament or when uh, Gentiles are grafted into that through the work of Jesus in the New Testament. So none of these statements about uh, the work or uh, about God being able to be seen in God's works of creation, uh, none of those statements in Scripture are divorced from that covenant relationship, which means none of them can be taken uh, in such a way. Uh, as affirming an abstract, independent, uh, prior knowledge of God that can be gained from creation outside of that kind of covenant relationship. Uh, Bart says, no, the covenant relationship, the faith relationship, all of that is assumed and presumed in all of these statements. So that uh, exegetical running commentary, so to speak, uh, on those 25 pages or so, again, beginning about page 97 in CD 2.1 and continuing from there, 
That's uh, one of my favorite sections in all of the church dogmatics. So there you have it, a second installment of uh, this series on how I read Calvin. Uh, we went through a bunch of stuff on Calvin and the knowledge of God in book one and ended up with some uh, evaluative remarks and talking about Bart, which is uh, not uncommon for me when I start talking about Reformed theology, what can I say? But thanks for joining me. I hope you enjoyed. And I'll be back with one more installment of this series on how I read Calvin uh, sometime in the near future.